2: Welcome to Stuff to
4: Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb,
4: and I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And uh, this episode is titled "Stendhal Syndrome: Kicked in the Brain by Art." <laughs> which I should I should point out that I uh, I like I think a lot of people first heard the term Stendhal Syndrome in reference to the Dario Argento Italian horror film by mm-hmm. the same name, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I'm not recommending anybody see because uh, when it when it comes to Dario Argento's work, generally you're you're best just watching Suspiria, maybe, and then calling it a day because it's just kind of similar patterns uh, from there on out. But uh, Stendhal Syndrome, the the movie, mm-hmm. uh, is a movie about like most of his films about uh, you know a killer who likes to kill women, and uh, the woman in the scenario is played by Dario Argento's uh, daughter Asia Argento, and uh, there's like one interesting scene where she stares into a painting. Gets uh, dizzy, falls, mm-hmm. and feels herself falling through the painting into the water, and then she makes out with an animatronic fish. Which sounds about right. Yeah, which is which is a pretty great scene because it's it's like a it's such an animatronic fish, you know. Like if you saw it in the water, even if you weren't making out with it, you would be like, that's totally not a real fish. That's animatronic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's one of the best cross species. Um, you know make-out scenes in Italian cinema.
4: You know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but <laughs> the the woman who who actually named uh, the syndrome sandal syndrome has commented on that film before and said that the uh, some of the the ways in which she reacted to this painting that she's uh, that she's looking at is actually pretty faithful oh, okay. to to the syndrome.
1: Well, there you go. The one scene in the in the movie that's interesting uh, is is actually maybe not that far Removed from what we're going to talk about today.
4: But now I'm starting to think about a bunch of tourists in in Florence, Italy, like thinking that they're making out with fishes. Yeah, or or asking,
1: which painting do I stare at to make me make out with a fish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Syndrome is, of course, named for the author, Stendhal. um, What was his real name?
4: Uh, Henri-Marie Bale, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Died 1842 uh, and wrote uh, the classic novel Scarlet in Black, uh, which... I really don't remember much about at all now, but I know I read it in college and I was really impressed at how good it actually was because a lot of times you end up reading like 19th century literature, you know, translated French novel, Mm -hmm. Your, you know, your expectations are not necessarily that high. Uh, but, but I remember it being a very engaging book, uh, just maybe not all that memorable, uh, now. Uh, but, uh, when Sindhal wasn't writing books, he was traveling right and writing about those travels and uh, when he was writing about his uh, visit to florence uh, he uh, mentioned having this episode mm-hmm. really while staring at a particular uh, painting he described fierce palpitations of the heart this feeling that the wellspring of life has dried up inside him mm-hmm. and uh, he and he walked in fear of falling to the ground so he's having this intense kind of psychosomatic episode just from looking at this painting. Right. Like uh, like he's, and it's such a an amazing idea. You can't help but, but fall in love with it. The idea that you could stare at a painting and you would be it would so impress you or it would have this. Overwhelm you. It would just overwhelm you, uh, like not only mentally but actually physically.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and uh, you know, I can say for myself that I've looked at paintings before and, and felt a little bit emotional, but I certainly have never, you know, become weak-kneed or made out with fish. <laughs>
1: I mean, I've, I'm pretty much in the the same boat. There there have been uh, times when I've encountered art, and it has really, I mean, it's really been a moment where you're you're blown away, and mm-hmm. you're just staring into it, and uh, and those moments really are cemented in your memory. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned like seeing uh, Irving Norman uh, his work in San Francisco before, and that that was a moment uh, when I got to see some of Salvador Dali's larger pieces when they were in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, Some of those were mind blowing uh, because I'd seen the pieces before, but never on that scale. And there's something about seeing art in the museum and seeing it physically Mm -hmm. that can uh, really mess with you. You know, Uh, likewise, of course, Cyclorama here in Atlanta when you first (laughs) when you walk into that's a joke, by the way.
3: (laughs) Um,
4: uh, yeah, it's a civil war painting
1: and diorama it's both it's a, yes and I it's should. and it's a circular painting uh-huh. so it has no end, it's infinity.
4: Yes, it's, uh, it is a painting and it is a diorama. Yeah. I will say that much. Um, but you know, we talked about your brain on art before and we talked about metaphor Mm -hmm. and we talked about why brain messes with your brain, uh, why brain messes with your brain, art messes with your brain so much because, uh, we are seeing these metaphors in action and they're encouraging us to see the world in a new way. And all of a sudden you have unrelated objects, um, directly compared and that somehow gives birth to a new idea or a feeling. And someone who was a master, at this, with Picasso, um, you know, he portrayed the, the bombing of Guernica, for mm-hmm. example, with the imagery of a bull, a horse, and a light bulb, and it's all in black and white and gray. And somehow you look at this painting and you really feel like the desperation, you feel the sort of stakes that these people were dealing with yeah. at that time um, and, and the tragedy of war. Right. And, and
1: certainly, there's not, not all art, but a lot of art deals with pretty weighty subject matter. Um, you know the the state of humanity, war, death, love, sex. Uh, you know, and then you you stare into a piece that it captures uh, these emotions well, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes even in a subversive fashion. You know, then yeah. uh, then it, you know it's going to have an effect on you,
4: right? And actually, B. S. Ramachandran, we talked about it again in that podcast. Mm-hmm. He talked about cu- cubism, and he talked about why it does what it does to us. Um, you know, it kind of decenters us is because the fusiform gyrus in our brain, there are cells uh, in in the fusiform gyrus that uh, only respond to certain views of a face. And then there are so-called master face cells Mm -hmm. that respond to all views of a face. And normally you only have one view of the face that would be presented at a time. And we're used to that sort of uh, perspective, right? Right. But in a cubist painting, for example, you have the presence of multiple views, and that causes m- multiple single views to be shooting off in your brain. So you have all this firing going on, you're hyperactivating the master face cells mm-hmm. uh, in the fusiform gyrus, and you're exciting the limbic system. So they're they're definitely, I mean, it's not just that something is beautiful or grotesque to such a degree that you're taken by i mean your brain is actually firing as as it's looking at this image and so it would make sense that it's not just stendhal that, that who would have this um, this sort of episodic experience but um, but but other tourists actually
1: and other tourists do experience this i mean that's the yeah. thing it's like stendhal syndrome is not just this interesting story from one author's life but it happens time and time again right and uh, it leads some scientists, to ask what's up with this. Now, not a lot of scientists, and that's one thing that's important to to note here, because ultimately, Stendhal syndrome is not uh, a public menace. Uh, (laughs) To whatever extent it is actually a thing, it's just people are overwhelmed by art. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in some of the uh, more intense, alleged cases of Stendhal syndrome, the worst is that it might make them a little violent, it may be prone to attack a painting or trying to kiss
4: right, it, right? Which we'll talk about. Yeah. yeah,
1: nobody's crying to government and saying we yeah. need more funding to find out what Stendhal syndrome is about.
4: Right, right. There, I, I'm sure that when you uh, when you land in Florence, Italy, that you know you're, you know, you're, not, you're not getting pamphlets, sure yeah. right, right, about hey, you're you're going to swoon in front of a painting. It's perfectly normal. Um, but there there was a uh, there is a psychiatrist named Graziella Macrini, and she started to see a correlation between. Uh, this this disorder with tourists that were coming through the emergency room doors where mm-hmm. she worked, and she she was like, why why is it after the viewing of artwork that these people are collapsing? So over a ten year period from 1977 to 1986, she studied this and she documented w- more than 100 cases of Stendhal syndrome, mm-hmm. and. What she says is that when you encounter the cultural riches of a famous Italian city, uh, you know, like Florence, and you're looking at Michelangelo's David, that statue, which is, you know, so iconic, um, and you are tired and you're hot, uh, some tourists could actually experience giddiness, confusion, breathlessness, panic attacks, and then faint to the floor. Okay. Right. These effects can last for minutes to days.
1: And, and what's what what I find most telling about the that summary there is that it's it takes in more than just looking at the artwork. It's not just because, uh, like, to take a piece that I've always found really impressive, um, Rembrandt's philosopher in Medi- in meditation. Not in not philosopher in medication. That's a different uh, piece altogether. But Rembrandt's philosopher in meditation is a very Uh, Like I look at it, just one of these pieces that sucks you in. I mean, it's you know, it's a masterwork with the spiral staircase and this gloomy individual looking out at you. If I were to look at that without having any preconceived notion. I, you know, I I might say, hey, that's a pretty cool painting and it, you know, and I'm having certain experiences staring into it. But feeling this way about the painting, which I've never seen in real life, Mm -hmm. if I were to go to a museum and see this actual work on the wall, I would be bringing these expectations with me. I would be bringing my past uh, reverence for the work with me to the painting and I would be Traveling to whatever city that is, I would be dealing with the public transportation. I would be dealing with the weird food. I would be dealing with, uh, right. uh, you know, with all the issues that go into into travel and exploring language. and trying new things. Language, mm-hmm. so all that would be coming to, with me as well to inform my experience of the painting in person.
4: Well, and you and know, I have talked about this before in terms of memory mm-hmm. and place, right? Uh, like you know, your example to me before has been like you visit a new city, you get off the subway and you emerge from the depths of of the station and you don't know where you are.
1: Right. And your and brain, your the, hippocampus
4: is like, yeah. whoa, trying to map this out.
1: Yeah, because the, the, the rat-like hindbrain is kicking in and saying, where are we? Where are the saber-toothed tigers? Right. And and am I go- about to be eaten? So I mean, it's like a survival instinct kicks in because you don't know exactly where you are in yeah. the spatial world.
4: Yeah. Okay, so imagine that, right, your hippocampus is, is already overtaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's
1: new stimuli all around you. And, of yeah. course, we need new stimuli to, to, to focus. But when you go to a, a foreign city, especially a... A drastically foreign city. Mm-hmm. Like when I think back to when my wife and I went to Thailand, like everything was different. Everything was new. We'd never traveled in East Asia before and it was intense because it, mm-hmm. it's like everything from the language to the temperature to the intensity of the food. You know, it's like it's all, it's all amazing and different and, uh, and, and your brain spends all this energy just computing it. You know? Right.
4: And so imagine that. Like, imagine if you turn around and you look at this incredibly moving piece of art mm-hmm. and your hippocampus is already taxed. And now it's not only just dealing with, uh, you know, spatial awareness, um, but memory, past memories, mm-hmm. you know, because you and your amygdala is also working up some emotions here. Right. Right. So all of these things could come sort of whooshing in. So you can imagine how Stenthal syndrome works in these, you know, I hate to say it, this sort of perfect storm or cocktail yeah. of a situation uh, that that would lend itself to this um, overreaction to a piece of work. Consequently, too, uh, it is Caravaggio's painting of Bacchus and the concentric circles of a Duomo Coppola, uh, Coppola as well as the as the Statue of David that seemed to be the breaking point um, in these documented cases of Stendhal syndrome. Mm.
1: And, I mean, David especially is such an iconic piece. Yeah. And I think, they're, I mean, they're, you're bringing in all these expectations, and then you're seeing it f- for real. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can you, you can see how a physical reaction might be possible, especially if you've been walking around all day and, and dealing with an entirely new environment.
4: Well, and sculpture is such an interesting thing, too, because the, the thing... When I I should say this, uh, when I when I look at sculpture, I'm always amazed the amount of detail that someone mm-hmm. has wrung out of a rock, you know, a piece of, of a rock here, and you know the details of veins in someone's arm, and then to see that on the scale that David is, I don't I don't know the exact stats, but it seems like it's 40 feet high when you look
3: at it.
1: Yeah, and and to see and to know the age of a piece too. Yeah, like, like even if a piece isn't that old. Uh, you know, it's interesting to, to think that, you know, the hands that made this are long gone. And, yeah. and this has been around for, you know, people have lived and died in the course of this painting's lifetime or this sculpture's lifetime. And, and you think of uh, in, in the older pieces, you think of like regimes that have risen and fallen, uh, you know, countries that have that have vanished from the earth in the life uh, cycle of, of this piece.
4: Well, and to, um, it's, you know, to imagine the, the humanity expressed in this piece that was conceived of by this human. Mm-hmm is just it can be overwhelming. Yeah. Um so okay, there you go. That's that's the Stenhall syndrome. Uh we're gonna take a break. Yes. And when we come back, we are going to talk about Japanese tourists in Paris.
1: Shout out to AstaPro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
5: Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a gigendian. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com/hypergig for details.
0: All right, we're back. We're going to
1: discuss some uh, similar syndromes that I think ultimately illuminate the same thing as Stendhal. These, as you say, uh, Voyager syndromes. Mm-hmm. For instance, there's one uh, this Jerusalem syndrome that has to do with individuals who have traveled from all over the world to see the holy sites in Jerusalem. And and again, you're bringing all this history with you. You're bringing, in, in, in many cases, uh, at least a, a certain degree of, uh, of religious uh, thought and religious fascination. Yeah, I mean your spirituality is tied up in these locations, and then you're standing there, like, or one day you're reading about these locations in the Bible, you know, and they're to a certain extent they're unreal, and then you're seeing them in real life, and uh, and you know what effect does that have on somebody? In some cases, apparently they they get a little faint, they they overreact a little.
4: Well, yeah, it's the story crossed with the crush of history, right? Right. Yeah.
1: Like I feel uh I feel maybe like I get something similar when I. When I'm in New York, uh, the the few times I've I've actually been to New York City, you know, this is an unreal city to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. For most of my life, I had never seen it, and I'd only seen it in movies, and I'd read about it in books, and it seemed like it's like this story, to a certain extent, kind of a storybook land. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't, you you, you imagine it, you see it in in fiction, and then you're there, and then you have to sort of process your um, presence in something that was previously imaginary.
4: Yeah, I know. I, I can't be in the Bowery without thinking about Bill the Butcher. Yeah. Waxing his giant, giant mustache, mustache. Yeah. although that was fictional. <laughs> <laughs> Gangs of, the, of New York. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a lot, by the way, of expectations that people bring with them when they travel, which is particularly interesting for something called the Paris Syndrome.
1: Yes. And what's great about this is, is it, it's kind of the opposite of Jerusalem and uh, Stendhal Syndrome. Well, it's not really the opposite. It's kind of the flip side of the same coin.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely the dark side. Uh, each year, about a dozen Japanese tourists are treated for Paris Syndrome while visiting the City of Lights. Symptoms are acute delusions, hallucinations, dizziness, sweating, and feelings of persecution. <laughs> okay, um, A handful of patients have had to be flown back to their country under medical supervision. And um, according to Youssef Mahumudia, a psychologist at the Hotel du Hospital, a third of patients get better immediately. A third suffer relapses, and the rest have psychoses. And some people just never want to travel again. <laughs> it was first documented in the psychiatric journal Nervier in 2004. And just to give people a, you know, an idea of, of what we're talking about, in 2006, two Japanese women suffering from Paris syndrome believed their hotel room was being bugged, <laughs> and there was a plot against them. Uh, previous cases include a uh, a man convinced he was the French Sun King Louis the Fourteenth, and oh. a woman who believed she was being attacked with microwaves. So, it, yeah, I mean that's a uh, that's a little stressful. It's sort of obvious why this might happen.
1: Well, yeah, I mean I I've never been to France, uh, but uh, I mean I I like a lot of people like a number of French things. I mean the the history is is fabulous. Some of, like some of my. Some of my favorite uh, authors are French. Uh, Alan Robe-Groulet, for instance, a uh, Frenchman. There's some great DJs. And, and, and again, the food is, is uh, you know, above reproach. But France does have kind of a reputation, or has in the, the past. I think mm-hmm. they've made efforts to to, uh, to fix it in recent years. But it has kind of a reputation of, of, of being kind of snotty to uh, tourists at
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that the, the French have gotten a bad rap for... for um their attitudes toward trust because I think on on the whole, it's not that bad. I mean, I have right. been yelled I mean, at before, I have to say, yeah. um, and I have had to apologize profusely uh, for being a vegetarian and <laughs> committing several <laughs> phrases of apology uh, to memory in French. Um, but if you're a sensitive soul, you can see, and it, not only just sensitive soul, but if you're someone who comes from a culture that is distinctly different, mm-hmm. where customers always king where, um, you know, it's a a rigidly formal culture Uh that um, is very concerned with manners. And on top of that, you have this romanticized version of the city that you're about to visit. All those things come tumbling down when reality, you know, sort of, you know, the rubber of reality hits the road. Yeah. Uh, You might feel exceedingly overwhelmed. You might start to think that someone's plotting against you.
1: Right. The, The streets of Tokyo and the streets of Paris, each of those... Definitely brings uh, uh, very different uh, ideas and feelings to mind, you know. Um, and and so if you're you're magically traveling from one to the other, you're gonna it's going to be quite a shock.
4: Well, and language barrier too, right? Like, I mean. Uh, I think that it's probably easier if you're if you speak English and you go to France and because mm-hmm. um, most people are going to have you know at least some um, phrases of English that they know, right uh, but not necessarily Japanese, right? That's gonna be a little bit more obscure uh, for someone who lives in in France. So yeah, that's a lot to contend with, yeah. especially if you have this like uh, idealized notion that France is just like one big black and white picture. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, like, François Truffaut's, uh Breathless mm-hmm. um, or even the, what was the, Amelie? Yeah, I, Amelie. The, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful picture. Yeah. That is your only uh, exposure to to Paris, and you're probably going to think that someone's going to present you with a baguette. And
1: yeah, and some, some beautiful smiling brunette's going to come up to you and... Uh,
4: help you across the street. Help you across the street, yeah. yeah.
1: You'll go on magical little scavenger hunts around the, the city, but it's not, not yeah. quite that way. yeah. And it's, it's also important to note in all of this, uh, with all these uh, these syndromes, that uh, if you are traveling and you have pre-existing psychological conditions, even if it's something mild, there's nothing like the stresses of travel to uh, aggravate those conditions.
4: Especially yeah. with Jerusalem syndrome. Yeah. Uh, because in those cases, hallucinations can be quite intense, from mm-hmm. what I understand. But here's, here's a... Okay, so... Here's here's another syndrome, and we were kind of laughing about this earlier. We don't necessarily take this one uh, too terribly uh, serious. Rubens syndrome.
1: Yes, this is named for Peter Paul Rubens, uh, uh, um, another one of the uh, the old masters, and uh, he's known for such works as uh, well. There's the Three Graces, sixteen thirty five, and this is like three. Uh, voluptuous nudes, sort of dancing in the forest. Mm -hmm. The judgment of Paris, which also is pretty, pretty nude. Uh, the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve, reasonably nude. And the elevation of the cross, um, it's Jesus, so it's partial nudity.
4: Okay, so you're getting the theme here.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of flesh in, uh, in Peter Paul Rubin's work. And and it's, and it's presented magnificently. I mean, he, he was, he was one of the, he's one of the old masters. He, he knew his craft. And, uh, so you're drawn into the, just the, the sheer artistry of the work. But then there are also naked people in it.
4: Right. There's there's yeah. a lot of carnal stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, a study by the Roman Institute of Psychology found that 20% of Italians have embarked on an erotic adventure in a museum. <laughs> and this is why they call it the Rubin Syndrome, because uh, many times th- uh, it's said that um, sensuous nudes uh, are are the reason <laughs> for people feeling amorous toward one another and, mm-hmm. and embarking on these um uh, Little trysts, but then we were laughing because we were like, "It's a twenty percent of Italians." Yeah, it, it, you know, and that's I not to know. say. Uh, I just think that maybe it's an Italian thing.
1: Well, it's, it's a you know, you got to like Rome's kind of a city of love, right? Or yeah, or catcalls anyway. So it it makes sense that people might find place in a you know <laughs> in a museum for uh, for that kind of expression.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
5: inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a beginning available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and slash for details
2: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
4: But I do think it's uh, this idea of being seduced by culture is very interesting, mm-hmm. right, sort of being brought in by that. Um, Roman psychologist Willy Passini has said that art has always activated an intensely erotic mechanism. Otherwise, what sort of art would it be? The study has found that museums rank higher than nightclubs, which 18% of respondents reported encounters. And are surpassed only by trains and beaches. Beaches at forty-three percent for
1: places that people were actually engaging in, mm-hmm. in
4: that that apparently are. are um, and I, I'm assuming that this is something that just is not premeditated, right? That in their study this right. was just erotic trysts happening on
1: on the fly. Well, I have to say it makes sense that it would that museums would outrank nightclubs because on at nightclubs more or less there's going to be kind of a sex patrol to make sure that nobody is doing it. In the the bathrooms or in the corners, like that's going to be a little more on people's radar. Don't let the the patrons have sex in the corners or under the tables. At the museum, it's it's. I would imagine it's lower on the priorities. I mean, they wouldn't be blind to it, but it's not like uh, you know. All right, it's five a.m. We're uh, you know we're getting ready to open for uh, open for business. Um, who has uh, sex patrol today? Who's going to be checking the corners? <laughs> Make sure you look behind the. Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, the petition. All, the, the petition, because that's uh, you know a favorite spot. So I don't know.
4: Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah.
1: But I think it does come back to the whole idea of, of being you know s- seduced by culture, and uh, and certainly there are plenty of works of art that have an erotic um, air to them, and and as much as we like to to think sometimes that even if we're looking at a you know a, like a nude sculpture, is it, we may want to to think in terms of oh this is I'm just having a purely artistic experience with this piece mm-hmm. there is often an erotic element there too I mean it's, it's kind of undeniable I kind of end up like when I'm looking at a piece that has nudity in it, I kind of have to sort of go back and forth where I'm like I'm like oh this is really good and then the voice says you don't like it just because it's naked people do you and I, and I have to say no no I don't I think this is you know and it's sort of this internal argument over the uh, the merits of the the art and the nudity
4: that uh, by the way you're actually talking out loud oh good darn it. I wanted to tell you that the other day when we were at the museum ah uh, but it was just kind of funny.
1: That's why the children were looking at me weird.
4: Exactly. So what happens when humans attack art, when, when we have the opposite, or maybe not even the opposite, maybe a related uh, reaction?
1: Okay, the classic example of this would be all the people who've tried to do things to the Mona Lisa. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Like they're, they're, they're throwing pain at her or acid or... Well, there seemed like there was an even more ridiculous example, right?
4: Well, there was a woman, a Russian woman who bought a mug. This is the thought um, at the gift shop and then returned to the Mona Lisa and threw it. And of course it smashed against the bulletproof glass and she was, you know, spirited away. But uh, the museum uh, security, I mean, they immediately wondered if this was Stendhal's syndrome. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't necessarily think this was someone who was actually trying to destroy the painting, but was having a, a, you know, a very passionate reaction to the artwork.
1: It's interesting because you think of of people who want to um, deface a, a famous work of art, and you, know, you try and wrap your head around it, and, uh, and and I imagine a lot of it comes down to this is something that is, and to a certain extent, it's it's immortal, you know, at least culturally, mm-hmm. uh, and you know certainly the you know the culture is not immortal, but this peace within culture is very uh, long lived. And if we are, to, if we hurt this thing, if we we put our mark on it, then uh, to some extent we are immortal, or at, at the very least we're we're envious of its own immortality, and we're able to. Uh, you know, bust it down a little.
4: Well, and also, you're immediately connected to it forever, right? Right. Which is, I guess, you know, from a fame point of view. Yeah. Uh, kind of like the
1: people, you know, they're always the, the people who want to touch the painting. Yeah. Or at least they get way too close to it, and they, and, and if you're lucky, there will be a guard there to tell them not to. But uh, but certainly children want to touch paintings, and I feel like, like maybe even though we inevitably grow out of that, that and we, we learn that, no, you do not touch the paintings at a museum, There's still that little kid in us that wants to touch it, and by touching it, become a part of it.
4: Well, on a related note, too, if you've ever seen a nude bronze sculpture sculpture of a woman, Uh you should take a look at the breast area because it doesn't quite have the same patina as the rest of the body. You can see that people have been groping her. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, we we want to connect with it. Um, In fact, there was a a 32-year-old woman in 2008 who so desperately wanted to connect with... um, a painting by American artist Cy Twombly that she wore, you know, a bunch of uh, red lipstick and actually kissed the canvas. Oh. And so there's, you know, the big uh, kissy mark on on this painting that I'm assuming that she ruined to some degree um, unless they could fix that. But this was in uh, Avignon, and there was a big, large, red smudge, and she was senti- sentenced to community work huh. for her transgression. There you go. Yeah. So, but this, you know, there are a bunch of other examples of people attacking sculptures with a hammer, like a mild-mannered, you know, math professor who is reportedly like this great family man who just one day showed up at the Louvre and with a
1: hammer, with a yeah. hammer that like, he did not buy in the gift shop, I'm assuming. No. Yeah,
4: no, premeditated for sure.
1: Well, I mean, the bottom line: art. It it, it when it's great, it messes with you, and uh, who knows what's going to happen, right? But that's, that's, right. that's one of the reasons we love art. I mean, and and again, it's why the idea of Stendhal syndrome is so. Um, we, we really want it to happen to us almost because you want to be that moved by art, you know? The, the idea that it, it completely overwhelms you, even physically, is, uh, is, is something romantic about that.
4: You do, you do. But mostly you want to be overwhelmed and then compartmentalize it and then go have a nice glass of wine.
1: Exactly. You know, o- and o- enjoy your Nice nutrition. overpriced glass of wine at the museum uh, cafe.
4: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, call over the robot and see what uh, Arnie has for us today. All right. Uh, here's one from a listener by the name of Mike. Mike re- writes in and says, "Dear Robert, Julie, and producer, I want to say, that's Jer- Matt. By the yeah. way, yeah, he says he Matt wants to probably? say Jerry, but I'm not really sure. No, nope. not, it's not Jerry. Not right now. It's, uh, it's Matt. Matt does a fabulous job
4: Yes, and he is also of stuff they don't want you to know.
1: Yes, yeah, Matt. Uh, that's the same Matt. So, listen. and
4: coolest stuff on the planet, right? <laughs> there's some sort of meeling sound so I think that means yes okay the multi-talented man
1: so uh, Mike writes in uh, to all of us and says hello from NEPA that's uh, northeastern Pennsylvania or did they say NEPA I don't know this is new to me NEPA
4: I'll go with it yeah. um,
1: I've been listening to your awesome podcast for about a year now and I, and have listened to them all on my long drive to and from work. Your podcast on tidally locked worlds has finally given me a reason to write in. I immediately thought of the game Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2. Both of which feature tidally locked worlds. And, uh, and Mike, it's, it's, uh, it's good that we mentioned Matt, because I know Matt is a fan of these games. Some of these worlds are viewable through space, uh, but the game allows uh, you to land on a few of the planets. The hallmark of these worlds in this game is the Twilight Band, a small portion of the world that is habitable, which I believe you mentioned on the podcast. And we did. The game doesn't get very detailed into the exact weather conditions, but they do seem to follow the trends of a scorched and blasted wasteland that faces the sun, and an icy, icy desolate wasteland that never sees the sun and that band of sometimes livable area in between the zones. Some of the planets described to have an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere, while others have things like uh, xenon as their atmosphere. Uh, a few even describe some gale-force winds that are created from the hot-side-cold-side side difference. I'll send you some links that include some descriptions of the game. Anyway, don't know if this is listener mail-worthy uh, for your robot Arnie to bring to you, but at least you'll be aware and have another fan of the show. Cheers and you up a great work.
4: Thank you, and you have been vetted by Arnie. He yeah. chose you.
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, and that we, sometimes we had somebody else on Facebook who mentioned, uh, uh, that there was a world on Futurama that was tidally locked. Which totally makes sense. I, for the life of me, I can't remember which one it was now, but. But there are a lot of uh, a, a lot of cool sci-fi ideas inevitably end up in Futurama because yeah, they're, that's they're true. pulling from the uh, from all those different uh, sources. Uh,
4: I saw an episode the other week and uh, they were going to a farmer's market and they were Cloaca Fresh eggs. Oh, that's, yeah, that's
1: where I I knew I'd used Cloaca Fresh at some point in a conversation and I was wondering where I picked it up from. But there you go. Yeah. Uh, it was probably Zoidberg. Yeah, I do yeah. yeah.
4: I just caught it and I was like, oh god, I love that.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, if, uh, if you guys would like to uh, interact with us, if you would like to uh, share some art with us even, uh, throw it on the Facebook uh, board. We are uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Facebook. You can find out what we're working on, what we've uh, just recorded, what's publishing, and, again, share great ideas with us. You can also find us on Twitter, uh, where our handle is Mind. one word.
4: And uh, we'd also love to hear about your reactions to art. I know that we have a listener, uh, Shanti who talked about a painting by Goya um, that really moved her and that was a, a great email to get very interesting. So if you have uh, if you've become you know wobbly need in front of a work of art, let us know or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at blowthemind com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast stuff from the future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most
2: promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon just $25 a month. Every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for?
1: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and
2: additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.